you have a Bible, you can open to Luke's Gospel. We'll look at the first four verses together. And again, there are Bibles on the uh, table in the back if you need one. Um, so we're starting a new series this morning on the life of Jesus Christ. I think it's probably pretty important to just talk about him. And uh, so we go to the Gospels uh, frequently. Um, and, and the series will mostly come from Luke's Gospel. I say mostly because uh, toward the end of the series, we're going we're gonna to be talking about the life and the, the person and work and the teachings of Jesus um, through the time of the church calendar that is kind of Easter season. So um, around that time, Easter, maybe a little bit afterwards, like toward uh, Ascension Sunday, which commemorates when he went up uh, from earth to heaven after being raised from the dead, um, we might look a little bit at... Um, Luke's other volume, the companion volume to Luke, uh, to the gospel, which is Acts. And that's, um, uh, in case you didn't know, Luke and Acts, written by the same guy, they take up a quarter of the New Testament, and, um, and they really are meant to kind of go together. And I speculated uh, just briefly on Twitter this week, I know none of you follow me, but um, <clears throat> that's okay, I forgive you. Uh, but I, I said, why don't we... <laughs> Why don't, why, don't, why don't we bump John's gospel up to the front of the New Testament, and, and then we can have Luke and Acts together, like they're meant to be read together as two volumes. Uh, there's, there's nothing sacrilegious about that. Don't worry. People might feel strongly about it, but the order of the books in the New Testament is not uh, codified uh, by God himself. There's, you know, there's maybe some good reasons to read John's gospel first, but um, basically all of this to say, in your own personal reading, as you're, as you're going along um, with the series from Luke's gospel that we're, we're starting here. Uh, read, read it with a mind, uh, keeping, keeping acts in mind, and even read them together, okay? So <clears throat> Luke, uh, he was the author. He was a highly intelligent, um, articulate man, as is evident from his writing abilities. I mean, the gospel is um, it's probably some of the best uh, Greek writing in the New Testament it ranks uh, among some of the best Greek writing in the ancient world that we have access to, but um, it's, it's just a masterpiece. Of, it's fascinating, compelling, interwoven stories and teachings that um, include a variety, actually, of uh, literary subgenres. Right? He's not only writing in one style. Uh, he has Christmas carols um, at the beginning. He has uh, psalms of praise. He has prophecies, genealogies, uh, miracle stories, parables, sermons, proverbs, uh, passion and resurrection accounts, all kinds of different um, ways that he is writing to communicate about Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and um, so he's, he's intelligent, he's articulate, and he, um, we know from uh, other places in the New Testament that he was a doctor, right? So Colossians 4, um, uh, Paul wrote that he referred to him as Luke, the beloved physician, and then in Philemon, calls Luke his fellow worker. So if Paul is a missionary, church planter, apostle, and Luke is a doctor who's a fellow worker, we can imagine him as kind of one of the first medical missionaries. Um, uh, Paul also refers to him in his, uh, his very last letter in Second Timothy, so he's writing to um, Timothy, who was his protege. He's uh, trained him to be a pastor, and now he's a pastor in Ephesus. And uh, toward the end of his life, right, right before Paul's uh, death, he was awaiting death in Roman prison, and he said, Luke alone is with me. 
Luke alone is with me, so a close friend and loyal companion to Paul. Most interesting, I think, about um, him is the fact that he, he was a Gentile. Right? Luke was a Gentile. He was not a Jew like every other author of the Scriptures, every other author of, uh, in the New Testament. Um, and he wrote fully a quarter of the New Testament. And he addresses his gospel to Theophilus, who is another Gentile, right? Um, and most likely, Theophilus was the one who sponsored Luke's writing of uh, Luke and Acts. Both of them are addressed to most excellent Theophilus. So he, he's probably the one who sponsored his writing and, and publication, which uh, implies that um, Luke intended a, a pretty broad audience for this gospel, um, broader than just one person to whom it was addressed, right? It's almost like a dedication to the guy who got this thing published so that the whole world could read it. And um, so it was addressed to Theophilus, who's already a Christian. His name uh, is a bit symbolic. It means lover of God. Um, So Theophilus is already a Christian, just as every other book in the Bible is written to people who are already part of God's people. Every book in, in scriptures is written to God's people with an explicit sensitivity to those who are not God's people. Um, It's addressed to the church. It's addressed to God's people, but it always keeps in mind people who are on the outside of that and talks in a way that uh, hopefully will make sense to people who are on the outside. Um, So that's how we're going to read it this morning, and and that's how we'll consider it throughout the series as we we see, as we look at the person and work and teachings of Jesus um, and how that is all good news for people like us and uh, for the whole world, really, um, to whom this was written. So let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we do thank you uh, once again for your word, for not leaving us um, in the ignorance of our own uh, stubborn and sinful minds, but that you uh, spoke clearly by the prophets, that your spirit inspired uh, holy men to write down your very word to us, and that that word has been preserved and uh, even put into our own language in such a way that we can understand who you really are and what has happened in the world as a result of your gracious working. And so as we turn to your word now, we pray that you would overcome our prejudices, overcome our blindness and our deafness, that you would overcome even the, uh, the deadness inside of our own hearts by your Holy Spirit, You're the only one who can uh, make your word uh, alive to us and live in us and and renew us. And so we pray that you would do that. Uh, We pray it and we rely on your grace for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, um, this is the first Sunday in Advent. it's the beginning of the church calendar. It's the time where we re- reflect on Christ's coming into the world. Um, this world was longing for something. This world was broken and needing healing. 
Uh, this world needs something, and Jesus came into the world to bring it, to bring it all. Uh, we remember uh, the anticipation that led up to his first advent. Advent means coming, right? So um, his first coming into the world 2,000 years ago as we lead up to Christmas and uh, the celebration of his birth, the songs that we're singing during this season. And we look forward to his second coming, to the second advent, when he returns to renew and restore all things together. Uh, um, forever. Um, but really, uh, during this season, we tend to focus on the incarnation, don't we? I mean, Christmas is kind of the, the highlight of the season, and the songs that we sing are about him being born and him becoming a man. Uh, we, we focus on the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God. Uh, when, the, when he stepped out of eternity, he stepped into history, he entered creation as part of creation. And... Um, and took on human flesh. He was miraculously born of a virgin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We don't know how that works. We just know that it's true from the scriptures. Um, He was born of a virgin, a young Jewish girl named Mary uh, from a poor family. He was born in Bethlehem um, when a census was being taken and his family had to be uprooted and moved to be counted among the people in Bethlehem. It's kind of their ancestral home, the city of David. Uh, And we celebrate that on Christmas. And then when Jesus was 12 years old, his family went uh, every year for the annual Passover feast up to Jerusalem. And uh, on that pilgrimage, when he was 12 years old, he, he stayed behind. He kind of got, got lost in the crowd, and his parents uh, got partway home before realizing that he wasn't with their group anymore and uh, discovered that he was in the temple, and he was amazing uh, the teachers, the temple teachers, with his wisdom as a 12-year-old. And when he was about 30... Uh, Jesus went out into the wilderness, and his cousin, his cousin was born just a couple months before he was, John, um, he was baptizing people, and and he baptized Jesus. And when Jesus was baptized, God the Father sent um, God the Son, I mean, God the Spirit upon God the Son, and anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and said, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And he told all of us to listen to him. And uh, then he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. And, um, and he didn't give in to the temptation. Right? He never sinned. And then Jesus returned to his family's town, Nazareth, where he told people in the synagogue that the prophecy of Isaiah 61, which we read earlier this morning in the Old Testament reading, the prophecy was fulfilled in him. Right? He says... In, uh, as it's recorded in Luke's gospel, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's referring to his baptism. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, the gospel, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And, uh, and then his own people ran him out of town. They were going to throw him off a cliff, but he escaped. So then he went to neighboring villages, and he taught with uh, what was perceived to be astonishing authority. Um, And he cast out evil spirits from people just by commanding them, just by speaking. And they left. And Jesus went and gathered a group of just kind of regular guys to travel with him and to learn from him, to learn about him, to watch him, to observe his life. And, uh, and his work and hear his teaching so that they would eventually be able to tell others about him and be his witnesses uh, around the world. And 
He went about the countryside helping people, healing people in his mercy, uh, getting into trouble for doing so in some cases, right? Especially uh, by the, um, because the religious establishment was suspicious of him. They considered him as a challenge to their authority. And he taught about love. And he loved people. Loved people very well. Better than any of us could hope to in this life. Uh, He especially loved uh, broken people. Outcasts in society. He told people the good news about the kingdom of God. The kingdom that he was bringing to life in his own life, because he was the king of that kingdom, uh, and the kingdom would advance as people would uh, believe in him through the word of the gospel. He showed his power over creation by doing things like stopping uh, a storm at sea, simply by speaking and rebuking, and uh, he sent out his disciples to proclaim the gospel in their preparation for Their roles as witnesses to his uh, death and his resurrection. He debated with experts in the Jewish law, the biblical law, who sought to trap him, to stump him, to catch him in his own words. He debated with them and he he rebuked them and the self-righteous for their hypocrisy. He taught people to think about God differently than anyone ever had, that we can pray to God as uh, to a father, to a loving father who's in heaven. He taught in parables that um, served several functions, really stung some people, and really gave assurance and comfort and hope to other people. Um, He turned people's lives upside down. And all of this before anyone took, like anyone official kind of took notice of him, Um, government officials or whatnot. Uh, All of this before the officials noticed him. And... um, when they did notice him, when the people in power heard about him and saw Jesus, they recognized him for the threat that he really was to their self-centeredness. Jesus is a threat to our self-centeredness. And um, I mean, here's the one true son of God coming to the world in the flesh, showing and telling everyone that they have to live for others. They have to live for others. Everything about that, the officials, people who are in charge, people who are in power, both religious and uh, kind of secular government officials, um, everything about that message and his person, they hated. They didn't care whether it was true or not. They just hated it. Um, So they had him killed as a criminal in a bad way. And the greatest man in the world uh, that that the world had ever known, and more than a man, was unjustly tortured and hung on a cross to die, and he didn't condemn them. That just blows my mind. (laughs) He didn't condemn them. He mourned over their souls. And he prayed for them while he was hanging on the cross. And he promised salvation to the, the real criminal who was next to him on another cross. And he gave up his spirit to his Father in heaven. And then his Father gave it back. And brought him back to life bodily, never to die again, which we celebrate on Easter, which we celebrate really every Sunday. It's the Lord's day. It's it's the day we commemorate the resurrection of the Lord. And all of this, Luke says in his intro to his second volume, uh, he says in his introduction to Acts, all of this was just the beginning. He says in the first book, he's referring to the gospel, 
in the first book, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up, until he went to heaven. That's a fairly condensed version of the life of Jesus Christ, and it's a story that's meant to be known by everybody on the planet. Everybody. Um, Luke's intention in writing the gospel is to bear witness to Jesus in a persuasive, convincing way that, that gives assurance to Christians and that also makes sense to non-Christians. There's a sense in which his, uh, his gospel here is kind of the first apologetic writing that we have. It's, it's a giving a defense of the Christian faith and uh, who Jesus is and what he's done to people who are outside the church. He's writing about the historical person, the historical person and work and teachings of Jesus to help you, the reader, uh, to be certain about the historicity of it all. Um, He says, and this is what this introductory statement is about, these first four verses. He says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished or fulfilled uh, among us. So we're pretty sure that Luke is actually at least partially referring to Mark's gospel because we're pretty sure that Luke used Mark's gospel for some of the events, some of the information, the content, uh, as one of the resources of, of the writing of his own gospel. Um, and another major source, which he says now, is that a number of eyewitnesses, right? This is the other source, a number of eyewitnesses to Jesus' um, life and ministry. He says in verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers or servants or stewards or attendants of the word, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered this to us, right? So that's a huge deal. That's a huge deal right there. Um, we live in a culture where it is, it is out of style to believe that the Bible is true and accurate and reliable. Right? Um, even a lot of Christians don't think the Bible is reliable. That the Gospels are a reliable source of information for who Jesus is and what he did. Um, they don't think that, that it's credible or reliable as an account of Jesus. People uh, cite things like the apparent contradictions or discrepancies, or supposed inaccuracies, or they dismiss the Gospels uh, offhandedly because they contain accounts of miracles, which, I mean, come on, miracles, you know, don't believe that stuff happens. Um, we all know it can't be true, therefore. Uh, there's, there's a general sense that people have, I think, uh, that the further away you get from the events that are recorded, the historical events recorded in, in the Gospels, the more easily you can just kind of dismiss or deny the historicity of those things. Right? People, think, um, people think that ancient people were uh, stupid and superstitious. Right? People who wrote this stuff, stupid, superstitious. They, all they could do was transmit what they heard through kind of bad oral tradition. It was not reliable. And uh, until, you know, finally a couple hundred years later, might have gotten written down on paper and then since then, it's been translated, translated, and translated. And um, now it's just a jumble, a, a mess. It makes no sense whatsoever. bears absolutely no resemblance to the historical uh, Jesus or, or the events surrounding him. Right? I mean, that's what people just kind of think. That's what's going on in the back of their minds. And now uh, you've got intelligent people who doubt that Jesus even existed. Right? I mean... Intelligent people who doubt that Jesus even existed. Um, the Jesus Seminar is a group of uh, 
supposedly Christian scholars who have decided that, you know, there's, there's about 20% of the sayings in the Gospels that um, can reliably be attributed to the historical Jesus, whoever that is. They're trying to find out who that is, trying to piece it together. Um, about 20% of what Jesus is attributed to having said in the Gospels really probably is reliable, uh, but really his followers kind of fluffed up the bits about all divinity and power and miracles and stuff. Um, modern, sophisticated atheists think that uh, he was just a legend and that groups of people just made this stuff up to uh, start a movement. I used to think that way. I fully thought that way. Um, thought that the Bible was just a jumble of crazy stories and lies written by a bunch of mean people, totally unhistorical. Um, I, I confess, I thought I knew what I was talking about, but I was completely ignorant on my views. Um, I hadn't even read the Bible when I made statements like that. I hadn't even tried to understand the Bible. And uh, I, I just had a, a hatred of it, a prejudicial hatred. Uh, like Jesus' enemies, they just hated him, not really caring whether it was true. Right? Um, just not liking the perceived consequences of it all. Uh, I refused to admit that there was a God. I refused to admit that I wasn't God. I refused to admit that my life was a failed attempt at autonomy from God. I refused even to consider the love and mercy of God because that would imply that I would need mercy from God. I'm pretty sure I deserve better than that. Um, so I didn't hesitate to render judgment on a book I'd never read. I didn't hesitate to declare Jesus an unhistorical, mythical, legendary figure. If you've got the same kind of mindset, I'm probably not going to be able to persuade you of anything different. Right? And that's, um, I mean, I didn't convert because my friends persuaded me with winsome arguments. Um, I, I converted because the Holy Spirit changed my heart and changed my attitude about this whole thing. And that might just sound ridiculous to you at this point, but that's okay. Um, you might pick up Tim Keller's book, Reason for God. Uh, we've got a copy of it on the book table in the entryway. Uh, you might wrestle through something like that, uh, honestly, um, because it's really important stuff. And one of the great arguments of that book, and, and several books, uh, actually, maybe this kind of originates from um, a great book by Richard Bauckham called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Uh, it comes from this idea that Luke was doing the work of a good reporter and in interviewing eyewitnesses. He interviewed eyewitnesses. Uh, if you were just making up a bunch of stu uh, stuff, just religious stuff, if you were just making that up, just fabricating it, then um, you would not reference eyewitnesses as your source of information, as the source of your content, especially not while those eyewitnesses were supposed to be still living in the area. Right? Um, Craig Blomberg writes a book, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels. I think this is where that's from. Uh, <clears throat> but he says, if there was a book that came out today just as an illustration, a book that came out today that said, in 1988, a flying saucer came down in a remote town in Canada and 5,000 people saw it. What would people do? 
they would go ask those people because there's plenty of them probably still alive to ask them about what they saw, right? To verify. Many verifiable eyewitnesses were alive when the Gospels were written. Not only Jesus' followers were eyewitnesses, but also those who resisted him, his enemies, and public officials uh, were witnesses. And it would have been easy to disprove the Gospels if they weren't true. It would have been easy to stamp this whole thing out before it even got started just by going and talking to these supposed eyewitnesses, right, if it weren't true. We readily receive eyewitnesses uh, as, you know, testimony in, in courts of law, and yet it seems that we willfully ignore verifiable eyewitness testimony in this case where our preconceived notions of reality are at stake. That's what's at stake, our preconceived notions of reality. Um, Another argument for the reliability of Luke's gospel as a true testimony about the life of Jesus Christ can be made from the same verse. He, he, witnesses, uh, he references eyewitnesses and ministers. Right? It's the same group. He's, um, he's not talking about two different groups. Eyewitnesses who became ministers. He's talking about the apostles primarily. Um, you've probably seen a movie or a TV show where there's a court case and uh, things are dangerous and the eyewitness is reluctant to testify because of fear for personal safety. Right? If I testify, if I bear witness about what I saw, it's the truth. If I say that in public, I'm going to suffer for it. And so they're reluctant. You've seen movies like that. The eyewitnesses to Christ's life and death and resurrection didn't demand to enter into the witness protection program Right? Even though there was tremendous risk to their personal safety, they didn't remain anonymous. They traveled the known world to proclaim the gospel that they had seen with their own eyes. The gospel which usually portrays them in a negative light. Right, They're usually painted rather poorly in the gospels as cowards and bumbling idiots. Right, um, And they proclaimed this gospel even though almost every one of them would be violently killed for it. It is not the kind of thing that you do when you've agreed with your buddies to make up a bunch of lies to start a religious movement. Um, if the authorities had you in the Colosseum ready to saw you in two, or they had you staked up in the emperor's garden ready to light you on fire because of your testimony to the gospel, and if really you had just been making up this whole thing all along about Jesus, you're going to change your tune. You're going to recant and apologize and work to undermine the whole thing to preserve your own life. And none of them did that. Just regular guys. Right? Only the truth of the Son of God becoming a man, living and dying and rising again from the dead and ascending into glory, uh, only that truth can make regular, cowardly, bumbling, idiot-type, self-centered people like us, guys like Peter and James to die violent deaths for their testimony, for their proclamation of the gospel, let alone a guy like Paul who previously had been set up pretty well as a violent, he was the opposition to the gospel. Right. Um, Luke's the kind of person who would say, if this stuff about Jesus is not true, uh, if it's not reliable, then you shouldn't believe it. Christianity isn't a religion of just subjective feelings about kind of a vague spirituality. 
Christianity is entirely based on historical events. Christianity is about what Jesus accomplished among us when he was here on earth, namely the revelation of God. He revealed God to us and the forgiveness of our sins through his life and death on the cross and through his resurrection. Historical events, that's what Christianity is about. Everything depends on the historicity of the gospel events, the true historicity of the person and work and teachings of Jesus Christ. So if you're going to be a Christian, it's got to be because these things happened. Not just because of a kind of a feeling that you have. It's because these things happened because Jesus really is who he says he is. And there's just there's no credible reason why they would have made it up. What Luke is trying to do with his gospel is present an account of Jesus that aligns with historical truth that makes good sense to anybody who reads it. His explicit purpose. The gospel writers were not fiction writers. A couple quotes here. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, um, who, by the way, was a literary genius, right? Um, He said, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this, he says of the Gospels. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, reporting, or else some unknown writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. Nobody wrote, if this is going to be categorized as fiction, nobody wrote fiction like this until about 300 years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago. They had no categories for it. So pretty much you're left with the option that this is reporting. Luke's gospel is reporting about Jesus. C.S. Lewis again says in another place, I'm perfectly convinced that whatever the gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legend, and I'm quite clear that they're not the same sort of thing. Even Einstein uh, said, no myth is filled with such life. Said that of the gospels of Jesus. So Luke goes on, verses 3 and 4, he says, it seemed good to me also uh, along with these, these other folk, folks who had uh, previously attempted to write good narratives on uh, the Gospels, uh, on, on the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, or a sequential account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. He's saying Jesus is real. Everything the Gospels say about him is true. And that's supposed to be reassuring to you. That's supposed to give you certainty. Because everything about him, about Jesus, as he's shown to us in the Gospels, everything about him is good news for people like you and me. So what do you think of that? I remember um, soon after I became a Christian, I thought, well, I guess if all of this is true about Jesus and about God, that pretty much changes everything. Pretty much changes my whole life. If it's true, it'll make an incalculable impact on your life, right? You cannot measure the way that your life will change because of the truth of the gospel. Not just for your own soul, not just for your own decisions, not just for your own actions in this life, but it'll change the way that you interact with everyone. Uh, for example, your children. We're about to uh, baptize a couple children, and 
when I start praying, you should go get them. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you'll teach your children the doctrines of our holy religion, which is one of the vows that the parents are going to take here in a minute. Uh, you'll, you'll teach them this isn't just something that we believe, that other people don't believe, and hey, that's okay. Um, you'll teach them something that, that you know is real. God is real. Jesus Christ is real. And Jesus is the only way to have a relationship with, Jesus, with, with God. Um, you'll teach your children and you'll, you'll interact with your friends as if the gospel is the only solution to the world's problems, to our problems as individuals and as, as a community. Right? And you're, you'll teach your children that their friends need to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it changes everything. Are, are you going to wrestle through the gospels? Are you going to wrestle through the Bible to find out what it's saying? To find out who Jesus really truly is? To find out what it means to trust him and follow him? I hope so. Uh, if you want to talk about that more, let's talk after the service. Uh, but I invite you to do that with us as we go through Luke's gospel for this series. Uh, amen. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you uh, have the name which is exalted above every name in heaven or on earth. And it is true that every knee will bow and confess you, Jesus Christ, as Lord. One day every knee will bow, and uh, even now uh, some of our knees bow to you. Some of us have uh, professed our faith in you and uh, sworn allegiance to you and desire to serve you, to get to know God through you uh, by faith in your grace. And we pray that the reality of who you are and what you've done for us would be, um, would be a comfort to us, that we would be certain and assured of the reliability of the Gospels, that we would be um, assured of the fact that we actually do have a relationship with you by your Spirit, because of your grace. We pray this not just for our own sakes, for the sake of our own souls and hearts, but for those around us. Uh, we pray that your gospel would be made more real to us and that it would abide uh, deeper and more lastingly in our hearts every day as we walk with you uh, for the sake of your kingdom going forth into this world. Uh, we pray in your name. Amen. <clears throat>